Good morning. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. If you were a good Baptist, you would have known you could have been seated after we said thanks be to God. We've got to work on that. If you're a visitor this morning, I want to say um, thanks for being here. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, especially thank you to coming out on a snowy day in March with time change. So time change in the, in the snow, we were like, who's going to show? But you guys are here, so praise God. All right. I feel like some of you are tired, though, so you need to drink some more coffee. I am full of stale donuts and coffee, so I am ready to go. I found some stale donuts in our house last night, downed those. I don't know how helpful that was, but we will see. All right. So after a sobering warning in chapter 6, the author has said that he is sure, though, of better things for these folks to whom he is writing. And Pastor Matt walked us through that last week. He sees the fruit of righteousness in them. He reminds them to continue in faith full of hope set before them and to patiently endure to the end to inherit the promise. Let me remind you, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And now in verse 13, he goes on to give an example of someone that we should imitate, someone that we should mimic, somebody that we should follow their example. He's going to give more, but he starts with Abraham, and it's appropriate that he starts with Abraham. So our first point this morning is an example of hope, an example of hope. Here we see a great example of a faith to imitate a hope that is filled to the top and one that endures with patience. For when God made a promise to Abraham, it says in verse 13, since he had no one greater to whom, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And many of you, even if you're not familiar, too familiar with the Bible, you'll be familiar with the story of Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old when he first received God's promise in Genesis 12. And the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, he says to this man. One problem, to be a great nation, you need some descendants, you need some children. And at this time, Abram and Sarai, his wife, had none. In fact, Sarai was barren. She could not have children. Nonetheless, the scripture says that Abram went as the Lord told him. Not understanding all of it, he packed up his house and he went In Genesis 13, God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that no one can count the dust of the earth. Your offspring also will not be able to be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of this land, for I will give it to you. Wonderful, but still no kids. Again, in Genesis 15, God says, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And speaking of Abraham, he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. But even at this point, there were still no kids. Genesis 21 tells us that Abram, now Abraham, was 100 years old when Isaac was finally born. Sarai, now Sarah, was 90. Abraham and Sarah had waited 25 years for the fulfillment of God's promise. And this is a good example for us to start with as the author encourages us to imitate those who faith and patience inherit the promise. Abraham has hope in the promise that God made to him. He looks forward in hope to this future reality in faith. His faith is committed to walk forward towards the promise. He doesn't understand everything, but his faith is grounded in the one who does understand everything. He must run towards the promise with patient endurance. We've mentioned this passage, and we're not yet there in Hebrews. Hebrews 12 reminds us that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us, or as the King James says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Patient endurance will be vital as he must endure many trials and tribulations as he waits for God's fulfillment. While he waits for this son that God has promised, he will have to fight many battles, leading a doubtful wife, dealing with his stupid nephew, fighting battles, many other difficulties. And through it all, he has faith that God will fulfill the promise. And he looks forward in hope. He sees this future promise as not just something vague, but as a reality that will really happen. And he lives by faith in light of that future reality. For us, the future promises that God has made can seem very far off, very disconnected, like we live in two different kingdoms. It's that kingdom and it's this kingdom, but for the believer, they are not disconnected. 
There is one kingdom, and that reality is the thing by which we base everything in our life. We look forward in hope as we see this reality that it is true and sure and it is a promise that we can bank on, and we live in light of that now. And that reality affects everything in our life. This is kind of like living in the reality of graduating from like high school. You remember those days? You're like, I'm here, I'm in school, and graduation seems like this vague, far-off thing that will never come. Like, I'm, I just keep going and going and, and doing my stuff, and they keep talking about me being able to graduate, but it just seems kind of so far off. And then all of a sudden, there you are, putting the weird hat on and the robe and walking down and getting your degree. Right? You, you live in high school in light of a future reality of graduating. Now, they are connected to each other, right? They're vital to each other. Works of righteousness are not disconnected from our future graduation, as it were. If you don't show up to school, listen to your teachers, and do your homework, you won't graduate. In school, you live in light of this future reality of graduating, and it should, doesn't always, but it should affect the way you do school. If you don't strive to enter the rest, you won't. We live in light of a heavenly graduation, as it were, and it should affect how we live here in this life. Some of you, in this analogy, could get expelled very easily because some of you are just trying to get a passing grade. But others of you, as the author here of Hebrews has mentioned, are doing good, diligent work. Another analogy for living in light of this future reality, this forward um, looking faith is when you're waiting to have a baby. Some of you ladies are expecting a baby. And, and you, you know, from the very moment when you hear the heartbeat and there's this surreal, I need Kyle Nepp here. He's not here to be like, he's so amazed still at the fact that he's got this baby. So every time I give an analogy about a baby, he's just like, oh yeah, I get it. He's so excited, right? But so the first time you go and you hear the heartbeat and you're like, oh, that's my baby in there. And then you get those little you know, chalk drawings of aliens that all look the same, and you show them to your pastor, at least this pastor, and I'm like, hey, they all look the same, but I'm so happy for you. It looks cute, I think. You're so excited, though, but you, you don't see the baby fully. You, can, you know, you see heartbeat, sonogram, all those things, but you live in light of that reality, right? You eat healthy, you get your sleep, you start setting up the nursery, right? You prepare, you read the books, you talk to people that have had kids already, and then all of a sudden, there it is. There you have your little baby. Morning sickness, uncomfortable sleeping, contractions, labor pains, and all of a sudden, that future reality that you were living in light of and preparing for and hoping for now is in your arms. And he says here that that's the kind of hope that we should have and live in light of. But as Pastor Matt has already mentioned last week, in this faith and hope, there is a need for patient endurance. So Abraham has faith, and it is a strong and steady commitment. He doesn't see the reality of that hope quite yet, but he lives in light of it. What he does see is a barren and stubborn wife. What he does see is a lot of ridiculous people around him. What he does see is battles and fights and roaming where God is calling him to go, and yet he still is having faith that God will do what he said he would do. He has faith and hope, and he has to, though, endure with patience. There is a need for patience when it comes to our faith and hope because life is hard 
and full of trials and tribulations and difficulties. And sometimes those trials, tribulations, difficulties seem so much more real than the things that we are basing our hope and faith on. As we look to the day that we will actually lay hold on that hope, our temptation is to try to take things into our own hands, to try to do God's will in our own way. In the 25 years between the time of the promise fulfillment, Abram and Sarai took some of the situations into their own hands. They had ideas about how they might facilitate bringing about the promise of God. One was that Abraham thought that his steward, Eliezer, was going to be the one who was to take over the estate and continue the line. But God reminded him that he would actually give him a physical, miraculous son. Another one, more famous one that we are aware of, is that they thought they could have an heir by conceiving a son through Sarah's slave, Hagar. And what a disaster that was. Listen, God's promises are not in opposition to the keeping of his precepts. Sarah manipulated Abraham, and Abraham abdicated his leadership role. The world is still suffering the consequences of that sin. Listen, you can try to summon the blessings of God, but you cannot do it apart from living in the statutes that he has called you to live in. God's will must be done in God's way. We love the idea of the future hope, but then when God says, now here is exactly how you were supposed to get there, we say, whoa, 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 I don't like that. How about a few detours here and there? And I understand because what you're dealing with right before you is tangible and you can feel it and it's painful and it hurts, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, whatever it is, you can see it. Families are messed up. Jobs are hard. Bosses are jerks. All sorts of difficulties. Pain, death, sorrow, suffering. And many times we can say, well, if I could just take these things into my own hands. And yet we find, like Abraham, that those things will always lead to destruction. This is why we must walk in patience. He got impatient. Faith and hope must be walked out in patient endurance, trusting that God has promised and God has also dictated how that promise will be realized. It's God's will, God's way, okay? God's will, God's way. Let us run with endurance, the race is set before us. Let us run with patience, the race is set before us, looking to Jesus. He's founded it, he's perfecting it, he's laid it out. Go read the Old Testament as God called his people to inherit the promised land. If you will do this, I will bless you. But oftentimes they wanted the blessings of God apart from God himself and his rules and his laws and his statutes. I was thinking about an example of this. Um, my family has vacationed often in San Diego. Karen has had family there, and so we enjoy that. We've already talked about um, the analogy in Hebrews of sailors and holding fast. Here in a little bit, we're going to talk about an anchor for our soul. So there's these ship metaphors. And in this idea of faith, hope, and patience, so this might be a corny analogy, but it works for me because sometimes I can be a corny guy. We need to be more like sailors on a ship's voyage. 
As they set sail, they cannot see the other side. They cannot see their destination, but they have a good map, they have a good ship, and they set sail with great hopes of reaching their destination. Others have gone before them and reached those distant shores, and they have great hope of doing the same. They know they'll encounter storms and sea monsters before reaching their destination. So they prepare well, they hold fast their post, they do their job, and they look towards the horizon, longing to hear the sweet words, land ho, land. But instead of imitating the patience of sailors, faithfully holding fast and patiently looking towards the horizon, most Christians are more like surfers. They're wave riders. Well, don't miss my analogy. Their faith and hope relies on the next big emotional wave to encourage them. Now, I don't have anything against surfing. I've been surfing once. I'm going to get emails. I, and as you know now, send the emails to me. Just send them to me. I'll take all the smoke, all right? It's an analogy. I've been surfing once and didn't do too hot. It's pretty cool. But the analogy here is that often we as Christians are more like wave-riding surfers than faithful, patient sailors looking towards the horizon. Sitting there, bobbing up and down, waiting for the next big emotional wave to encourage us. American evangelicalism is full of emotional surfers. Whether it's the Asbury quote-unquote revival, a passion conference, or the gospel-centered movement quote-unquote, they are surfers looking for the next big swell, the next big high, the next big thrill to carry them on. Just become emotional addicts, looking for the next God hit. When we stand on the beach in San Diego, you can see these huge naval warships going out to sea. My brother-in-law was stationed there in the Navy for a long time, big Navy city. As you stand there looking out on the beautiful beach, you see these huge warships going out into the horizon. And if you stay there long enough, they just continue to go and go and go until there's a tiny, tiny speck on the horizon. But in the foreground, closer, at the same time, there's all these dudes sitting, bobbing up and down, waiting to ride the waves. And as I thought about this idea of patient endurance, that picture came to mind. As that God has called us with faithfulness to plunge out into the deep, not seeing the other side, but trusting and hoping and living in light of that future reality, knowing for sure that it is the case, and knowing that we will suffer, we will endure hardships and trials, but if we are faithful and patient and endure, hauling up the rigging, swabbing the deck in all those shippy terms, that by faith we will make it. But often we are simply spiritual surfers, waiting for the next high. And this could look like, listen, I gave some analogies there. This could look like, you know, give the classic example of my spiritual high is getting really ramped up during an emotional song and I feel really good after a service and then I leave. And that's what a lot of just our churches in America are doing now. The, the fog machines and the, the silly songs that get you all hyped up so you go out feeling really good about Jesus but there's no sustenance to that. And so when the trials start to smack you in the face, you, you need the other hit. And you have to have more crazy hits to feel that high, and then you find yourself way out in left field. But also it could be putting all your hope and stock in your rhythms. It's hard for me as a control person when my rhythms get interrupted. Preparing for this sermon this week was not very um, easy 
because the rhythms of our family were really messed up because the dreaded stomach bug had come to our house. We're good, by the way. And whoever blessed brother or sister gave it to me, I forgive you, all right? <laughs> my, my brother from the Congo would laugh about this. I was, I'm laying on the floor in the bathroom. I won't go into the details, but you know, just crying out to God, making deals with God. Oh, you know, I'll never do that again, or whatever. And I, I was thinking, I, why am I so sick? And the only thing I could think of was that I had hung out with my friend, Pastor Fabiano, on Wednesday. And I was like, Fabiano gave me some Congo virus. And I'm going to have to, I was like trying to get his number to call him and get a remedy or something. I was just so confused. And I was so thrown off. And when my rhythm gets thrown off, oftentimes because I have a, a, a tendency to put too much faith in my ability to keep my rhythms and my standards, when that gets thrown off, it's all an upheaval. That can be my emotional high, so to speak. That's a way I can ride the waves. And there's another analogies, but you get the point. And it's interesting, too, as we come to the idea of suffering with patient endurance, looking ahead to this hope set before us. So many people think that it's just too hard. Expectations are just too high. Sermons are too hard. Leading my family is too hard. Parenting my kids are too hard. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, you will have to work. It is hard work to be a follower of Jesus. Somehow we've forgotten that the scripture says, take up your cross and follow me. If you don't think this applies to you, listen, our Lord himself suffered. And through that suffering, learned obedience and was sanctified, are you better than our Lord? Do you expect some other path? We are called to run after the forerunner and he learned obedience through suffering and he patiently endured and he overcame. Should we expect anything else? And listen to this too, maybe I'll talk about this a little bit later, but Jesus also did it with joy. He did it with joy, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He could use a little more joy in our suffering and patient endurance. So despite Abraham and Sarah's attempts to bite the bit, that's a, a horse term, the horse would bite the bit when you're riding them, and they would decide, I am not gonna go where you want me to go. So many stubborn horses that you're riding and they bite down the bit, you could feel it. The reins would go taut, and you knew you were in for the ride of your life. How often do we bite the bit when God has called us to walk in his will, in his way? But despite that, we see the demonstration of their faith. We see great faith and hope demonstrated in their lives. Abraham had faith. He had made a commitment, a covenant of trust to God, regardless of his feelings or circumstances. He was faithful. I'm sure there were some times when his faith wavered and lapsed, but the Bible says that his faith also grew to towering proportions, even though there were hard times that he had to walk through. Romans 4 tells us of this. It tells us that even in the face of being too old to have children, even in the face of all the reality that was standing in the face of this miracle, their faith grew in hope. Romans 4.14 says, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, 
because he had been told this. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Do you hear that this morning? This is the example the author of Hebrews is telling us to follow. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is this faith that he had. That's why it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed that he would become a father, and as a result, he was declared righteous apart from works 14 years before his circumcision and hundreds of years before the law was given. One of the greatest events in history, one of the greatest events in salvation history, we see the Lord gives another sign. You need to go and you need to read from uh, Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 22, I think I put that in looking head, to see the faith of Abraham. God makes another promise to Abraham. He tells Abraham to, and you're familiar with this story if you've heard us preach, he tells Abraham to make this sacrifice, to pull apart these pieces of the animals, divide them in two rows. And when the sun has gone down, God appears at night, the scripture says, as a smoking pot of fire and a flaming torch and pass between the pieces, signifying, this is what God is signifying, his promise was unconditional and that he, almighty God, would be torn asunder like the pieces if he failed to keep his promise. We see this ultimate act of faith in Abraham, the man we were supposed to imitate. In Genesis 22, where God asked him to do the unthinkable. He has his old patriarch, after all he had been through, finally he has his son now, and what does he tell him to do with his son? To sacrifice him, to kill him. And in great faith, Abraham, not understanding at all, obeys what God commanded with confidence that God would somehow keep his promise still. So great was his faith, the Bible says that his, the knife was coming down and the angel had to stay his hand and yell at him to stop. That's how great his faith was. Emotions, doubt, confusion, all of it brought under the lordship of his God. All of it brought into subjection and obedience to God's promises. He didn't know how, but he knew that the promise was going to be fulfilled because a promise is a promise and God had promised. So great was his faith that he believed God would raise his son from the dead to fulfill the promise. And God was so pleased with Abraham's supreme act of faith that he did something that he had never done before. He swore that the promise would come to pass. And here's the significance of this. The significance of this, from the perspective of the writer of Hebrews here, is that whereas God had repeatedly promised Abraham that he would make a great nation of him, now here he swore a solemn oath to make it happen. Look at the text. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, 
and multiply you. He's quoting here, the author of Hebrews is quoting Genesis 22, 17. And here's the assurance of the hope. This is, this is what gave Abraham such faith. Even in the moment when the promised son is there and he has to take him up the mountain and he, Isaac himself, is carrying the wood and saying, uh, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide one. And Isaac begins to understand, I've seen this before, I think I'm the sacrifice. And yet, so great was his faith that the knife was coming down. What is the assurance of our hope? 16 and 17 of our, our passage today. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And all, their dispute, and all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Here's, a, here's a, I can say it as plainly as possible. The reason that Abraham had such great faith that the promise would come true was because God had promised to make the come true. We have God's promise for it, and a promise is a promise. I, in, in preparing for this text, I overcomplicated it too much because I just wanted to get up and should just let Sarah read it to you and said, he said what he said. You're dismissed. God's people said, Amen. Go. God promised. What else do you need? What more can he say? Then to you he has said, the hymn says. Read your Bible. Walk in faith. Look forward in hope. Patiently endure. But since I'm a control person, we're going to get really detailed here, okay? All right. Blame it on the Spirit. So how do they, here, real quickly, if you're not familiar, how does an ancient promise given to Abraham, this old patriarch, help me sitting in this pew in Dayton, Ohio, all right? How, how does this connect to me, Pastor Jeff? You're talking about Abraham. I think I can imitate his faith. Cool. But how does this promise thing connect to persevering and laying hold on the hope? Okay, quick little history lesson here. Because you are, if you are in Christ, this promise given to Abraham, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, this promise given to Abraham is also a promise to you. Verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, if you are in Christ, you are an heir of this promise that was promised to Abraham. He guaranteed what? That by faith, hope, and patient endurance, you would obtain the promise. Who is he talking to? Heirs of the promise. Who is that? It is those, later on, he says, who have fled to God for refuge. Okay? What's the connection between me and this old patriarch? Romans 4, 22. 23-25. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also ours. Also ours. So we inherit the promise of Abraham, that God gave to Abraham, through faith in Christ. Christ is the, the true promised son. And what it takes to qualify for this promise is not Abraham's ethnicity, but Abraham's faith. Not the ethnicity of Abraham, but his faith. It is by faith in Christ that we inherit the promise. Do you see the connection? You good? Cool, I'm going to move on. What is our guarantee? What is our guarantee that we will be able to lay hold on this hope one day? What was the guarantee that Abraham had that gave him such committed faith? 
What was, the, what was the guarantee that he had? God's promise. Thank you. Who said that? Matt did. Matt knows, but he's a pastor here. He was seminary. It's supposed to be sarcastic because you all have Bibles, right? You can know just as much. His promise and his oath and himself. Two unchangeable things. So don't miss the powerful encouragement that we get from the heart of this text. Our confidence is not in ourself or even in the promise. Our confidence is in the one who cannot lie. Our confidence is in the one who made the promise. Not the promise of God, but God himself. Verse 18 says, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So he gives his word, his word of promise, and his oath. Let me unpack that for you quickly here. His promise, his promise to Abraham and to us can do nothing other than come true because God's word is what? True. John 17, 17 tells us about this. And because God never lies, Titus 1, 2, he is the author of truth, the essence of truth. God's word is truth itself. What did God say in the beginning? Let there be light, and there was light. Jesus said, peace, be still, and it was still. Demon, come out of them, and they came out. Lazarus, come forth, and the dead body of Lazarus obeyed. God's word is action. God's word is truth. He gives his promise to Abraham, and that was that settled it. This is going to happen, Abraham. That settles it. Joshua tells us about that God's word has never failed. Remember our series in Joshua at the very end? Not one of all God's good promises, which he spoke to his servant Moses, had failed. They all came to pass. Titus, I already mentioned Titus um, 1 2. Let me read it for you. In hope of eternal life. That's what we're, that's what we're after here. So we're looking forward in hope of laying hold of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. What more can he say? Then to you he has said, who unto the Savior for refuge have fled. Amen? Amen means I agree. Amen? But he goes further. And gives an oath. If God's promise was not good enough, he has given an oath. And his oath, even though it is unnecessary to give, is the double assurance that he cannot lie. The double assurance that he cannot lie. An oath, especially people in ancient days understood this much better, an oath is an end to all controversy on the issue. An oath is to end to all the controversy. One commentator said, people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. The reason human oaths are used to end disputes is because of the unreliability of human speech due to sin. 
That is, people are naturally liars. And in the context of ancient culture, especially when people seem to fear God more, and if they were the people of God who feared God more, swearing by something greater than them helped to assure the truth. And if one swore by God, it was as if to say the argument is over. My solemn oath ends the debate. Oaths in this time were a powerful assurance of one carrying out one's word, end quote. So people swear it today by something greater than themselves, right? If they really mean it. Like you don't swear by cats because cats are stupid, right? You, you swear, and Matt's dogs, you don't swear by those either because they're like cats. You swear by something weighty and, and heavy with significance. Have you heard people say, I swear by my mother's grave as if to say, I honor my mother's memory and if I do not keep my word, it would bring great reproach and shame upon my mother's name. Or more powerful, I swear by my life. And what people are saying in that is, if I do not carry out my word, may my life be forfeit. May my life be forfeit. Now here's the thing about a promise and an oath. The promise and the oath are only as good as the person making the promise or the oath. God cannot lie and God cannot die. God is saying, if you are not to be kept, then may I be found to be a liar. If I will not fulfill my promise, then may I die. You see what he did there? I can't die, and I can't lie. So therefore, the promise of you laying hold on this future hope has been doubly sealed by the God who cannot lie and the God who has given his solemn oath, the God who cannot die. And what does he give as a guarantee when we have doubts? We've already said his word. And what is his word based on? Himself. Himself. Of course, in choosing to make an oath, he could only choose to swear by himself because as he looked around, there was nothing greater to swear by. I was talking to Pastor Russ about this, and Pastor Russ said, yeah, God just was like mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the greatest of them all? Oh, that's me. <laughs> I am. So he swore by himself. To swear by anything less would have had the effect of making his oath less permanent. As one commentator put it, speaking of this passage, Lord of the world, if thou hast sworn by heaven or by earth, I would have been able to say, as heaven and earth pass away, so also thine oath shall pass away. But now thou hast sworn by thy great name, by thyself, as thy great name lives and abides eternally, so shall thine oath continue secure in all of eternity. You could say it this way. Truth has sworn by itself that its truth shall truly be fulfilled. We can talk about that in cold pizza tomorrow. It is more possible for God to fall off his throne in heaven 
than for him to break his word. And neither of those things are going to happen. His word is strong, and this gives us strong encouragement. This is not sentimental optimism. This is not seeing how I feel when I wake up in the morning. This is not hoping for the best. This is a guarantee, and it should cause our hope to overflow in joy. When trials and tribulations say, what is the guarantee? That you will lay hold on this hope, we answer, my guarantee is his word. And when doubts and unbelief say, how can you trust his word? We answer, I can trust his word because he has based his word on himself. So what do we tell to our, our doubts? Go to hell, all right? Because God has promised. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, I've just met my time for a normal preacher, but I'm not one, so I'm going to keep going. How is this strong encouragement, friends? So that by two unchangeable things, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to refuge, uh, we who have fled to him for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. The language behind our text here, the, the undergirding language here of verse 17, when God desired, indicates that God's decision to make an oath and reaffirming his covenant to Abraham was not a whim, but a passionate, sovereign choice to make this oath was not a whim but a passionate sovereign choice the greek language here is indicating purposeful deliberate it was a purposeful deliberate exercise of the will of god why was god so predetermined about making this oath let me read verse 18 again Here's the answer. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge to him might have strong encouragement, literally strong, powerful encouragement to, lay, to hold fast to the hope set before us. He wants us to see the reason that we are persevering, the reason that we are committed in our faith, patiently enduring, overflowing in hope, is because he is preserving and he has ordained it before the foundations of the world. If God has determined that you will persevere, you will. He has made a promise so we can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us both the will and do of his good pleasure. We can press on, we can press on. We can swab the deck and, and haul the sails and all the ship things. Looking to the horizon, we can work hard, press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We can do good works of righteousness because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My good works of righteousness are a sign of God's good work in me. This is strong encouragement. The strong encouragement is that we can be sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So here's the last point. The object of our hope. 19 and 20. We have, just 19 for now, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope 
that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Everybody still awake? Adam, I see you. He raised his hand. I think you were asleep, brother. Okay, you're good. I'm awake. What he's saying here is that the object of our hope, as we've already said, that our, our hope is not in the promise, but in God himself, who makes the promise. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here, as he's been explaining to us this idea of Jesus, the great high priest, he's saying that we have this steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place of the curtain, behind the curtain. We have a living hope. Christ is our hope. Literally. He is the thing that we are pressing towards. He is the thing that we are growing up into maturity to be like. He is the thing that we will be like one day when we see him, when our faith is now sight, and we literally lay hold on the hope that is set before us. A living hope. Jesus is the foundation and the substance of our hope. This is why we can have hope overflowing because our hope is not dead somewhere. It's, just not, it's not just stoicism. It's not just some kind of dogma. No, it's a person. Our faith and hope is in a person who is alive and who is ruling and reigning over all things. And this is why we can really live in light of this future reality because our hope is a living hope. First Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed to you at the last time. Christ is the certainty of our hope. This is the anchor that keeps us from drifting off course and crashing into the rocks. The hope set before us comes from the fact that we are in Christ, the Son who fulfilled Abraham's covenant. And in the end, we will be with Christ and like Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus is the thing hoped for and the ground for our eternal optimism and joy. Everything promised comes to us through Christ. Jesus is the hope to which we hold fast and he is our reward in the end. On that day, as I've already said, we will literally lay hold on the thing that we long for. This is the anchor for our soul. It is the thing that connects our soul to the very throne of God. And the writer's point here, don't miss this, is that what we are hoping for, like the sailors setting out on the sea, not seeing the other side, but hoping for it and living in light of that reality, knowing that it is true, that there will be land there and they will make it. He wants us to be absolutely sure and confident because Christ is absolutely sure and real and alive and he has given his promise. This is true because it's not based on something that we have done, but it's based on the person and work of Christ as our great high priest. 19 here says about this anchor, giving this idea of Christ, it says three descriptions of this anchor. It says this anchor, this hope, is sure 
steadfast, and it enters within the veil. He is saying that this anchor is sure, it is certain, and it is safe. The anchor is steadfast, firm, and reliable. The anchor is fastened within the veil. He's referring to the veil that would, that would divide the Holy of Holies from the people of God. We've already unpacked this through the beginning part of Hebrews, as you know well. It's a place where the priest must enter once a year as he brought the blood sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. The believer's hope is anchored in the heavenly holy of holies where the glory of God dwells. Verse 20 says that this is where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for us. And where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, he bids us to follow him. Saying, if you are in me and if this promise is in, is, is, I have made and you have accepted and believed in this promise, you, you will be here as well. He bids us follow him. And he has ensured not just the promise in the end, but the means as well. It means that all those who are in Christ will also enter there and be with Jesus someday. John says this, John 14, 1 through 6, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. Go to prepare a place for you. I told you that already, he says. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, what did he say to him? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reason that we can enter that rest is because Jesus has gone as our forerunner, as the great high priest, not in the order of Aaron and the Levites, these earthly priests who had to offer sacrifices for themselves and then for the people. Those priests who, had to die, who died and had to be replaced. No. Their sacrifices for sin had to be repeated. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But Jesus, verse 20 says, has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek a forerunner bidding us to follow and his reign and rule supreme and secured forever. Jesus has entered into the holy of holies once and for all, offering up his own infinitely precious blood and his own indestructible life. Therefore, his atoning work for us is perfect and lasts forever. And the stormy seas, ships, anchors, keep them from drifting off course and crashing into rocks. And the scripture says that we have an anchor connecting our soul to the very throne of God. The anchor, you know, we're familiar with these anchors in our day that go down to the bottom of the sea and attach to the bedrock. We have an anchor that goes up into heaven Connecting our soul, if you are in Christ, to the throne of God, because that's where Jesus is. So why Colossians says to set your thoughts on things above and not on things on the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where he is, seated at the right hand of God, ever making intercession for us. This should strengthen your faith. The whole point of the end of chapter six is that you, if you are in Christ, would have strong encouragement to lay hold of the hope that is set before you. 
and know that there is work to be done. There is work to be done. But knowing that God has made a promise, and a promise is a promise. Brent and I were talking about Luke 22 the other day. She was sharing this with me. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's talking to Peter. Peter's so boastful about how he will endure. Jesus says to him this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that's what Christ does for us now as the anchor from our soul goes to the throne of God where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is perfect. It lasts forever. And he intercedes on our behalf, praying and interceding that we will not fail. Let me give you some application. Uh, let me give you some, a little more unpacking then I'll give you some practical application and we'll be done. I was helped by Piper uh, reading this um, on, on this, on this part, some of the commentary he had. So what is the point um, of the text here to say? Is it, is it trying to say this? Okay, Christian, this is your strong encouragement. Take hold of the loose end of this rope and you will have safety and assurance and firmness. So there's this anchor that goes to the throne of God. It's connected there. Is the end of the chain just dangling out and our job is to jump up and grab a hold of it and just hold on really tight? Is that what it's saying? Is there an anchor firmly connected to the throne of God and then just the ends hanging out there and you're ah, ah, trying to grab a hold of it? Hang on tight to it, white knuckled? Is he just saying, hey, hang on tight? I used to say that to my brothers when we'd go on the sea dues or when we would have people from my dad's church who had never been on the, the sea dues, you know, jet skis. He's get on, hang on tight, you know. Is that what he's saying to us? No, I don't think so. Think about the picture given here with the anchor. An anchor's job is to keep a ship from being blown by the wind and swept by the tide into the rocks and out to sea. It's to keep the ship from heading into destruction. Now, if I said to you, I have fitted your ship with a solid, heavy anchor, and it will grip the bedrock of the ocean floor, but I haven't attached it to the ship, is that any help? No. Does that give you strong encouragement? No, it's not attached to the ship. It's, okay, I know there's an anchor, and it's going to hit the bedrock, but if it's not attached to my ship and fashioned strong, then how is that encouraging to me? But that's not the picture we're given here. When he says we have an anchor of the soul, I think he means exactly that. That those who are in Christ have an anchor firmly anchored in heaven. The anger is attached to the believer's soul and fastened to the throne of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And here's why. Here's some, here's some evidence. Remember Pastor Matt's sermon last week, the writer had just warned against drifting away from God into apostasy. And then he says in verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, the things that accompany salvation. The better things here are perseverance in faith and patient obedience. In other words, holding fast to your hope. And he says that this is the thing that accompanies salvation. This is the fruit that we see in your life. This is why the author is encouraged. He says, I'm encouraged as I see the fruit in your life. As one of your pastors, I am encouraged by many of you as I see 
the works of salvation, the things that accompany salvation being worked out in your life. Others, I'm not so sure. But we will continue to warn and encourage and persevere. The better things are the patient endurance, holding fast to their hope. These things accompany salvation. He's saying holding fast the rope anchored in heaven is an effect and proof of belonging to Christ. We have, we hold fast because we are held fast. So first, there are, our hope belongs to salvation. So we see the things that are evidences of righteous indwelling of the Spirit in you. The second thing here is we hold fast because we are held fast. In Hebrews 3.14, if you remember, he says, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. He does not say we will become partakers in Christ. Listen, if we hold fast. But he says we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. In other words, holding fast to the rope anchored in heaven is an effect and proof of belonging to Christ, not the cause of it. We must hold fast, but we can hold fast only because we are being held fast. A couple sermons ago, I preached a sermon called In the Grip of God. Nothing will be able to pluck them out of my Father's hand, Jesus says. You're only able to hold fast because you are held fast. We have become partakers of Christ. And the evidence is, is that we hold fast. It's the power of Christ in us that sees that we hold fast. Are you following me? One more. God's work then brings us to heaven. At the end of the letter of Hebrews, we will get there one day, patient endurance, we're going to get there to the end of Hebrews. Hebrews 13 20 through 21, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in you that, working in us which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus to whom be glory forever and ever. So Jesus, this is why this is a strong encouragement and why we know that the, it's not just a, a, a chain dangling out that we have to hold to. When Jesus purchased our salvation, listen, by his blood of the eternal covenant, what he obtained for us was not just heaven, but the faith and hope that it takes to get us to heaven. Do you hear what I'm saying? Let me say it one more time. So when Jesus, by his precious blood, the blood of the eternal covenant, the new covenant, what he obtained in that was not just that you would obtain heaven, but the means it would take to get you there. The faith and the hope and the patient endurance that it would take to get you there, that's also what he purchased. It says working in us. He is working in us. That's what the text here says in, in chapter 13. He is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, which means that holding fast to our anchored hope is not our self-secured work that brings us to heaven, but it's God's blood-bought work that brings us to heaven, and that is our hope. So you can say now, maybe, okay, I get that, but now you might ask, why does the writer 
encourage us to hold fast to our hope then. Okay, like over here he's saying you have to strive, but now you're just telling me that before the foundations of the world, God put his love on me and a promise is a promise and I'll make it through, then why should I even try? Here's why. Verse 18 unpacks this. If our holding fast is already obtained and secured by the blood of Jesus, okay, why does God tell us then to hold fast? And I think just three simple answers. What Christ bought for us when he died was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but the enabling power to hold fast. What he bought was not the nullification of our will as though we didn't have to hold fast, but the empowering of our wills because we want to hold fast if we are in Christ. And what he bought was not the canceling of the commitment or the commandment to hold fast, excuse me, the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. That's what he bought for us. So we have an anchor, the hymn says, that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows rolled, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Left to your own, you will fall away. But God has never lost any of his own because he has promised. He has promised. I'm going to give you, well, there's six of them. Okay, I'll do six of them. I'm going to give you six ways to simply hold fast to the hope that is set before you. So there's more, very, very quickly, just six simple things. So you're going to write these down. You can, or we can talk more about them afterwards. What, is, what does this look like to hold fast the hope that is set before me? It looks like can't say it any plainer, banking on that hope, completely trusting it, feeling secure in it, being satisfied with it, longing for it the way you long for the sun to come up after a long night, longing for it the way I longed for my stomach bug to go away. I know this is going to go away, but I don't think it's going to go away. If you ask my wife, I turn into a real big baby, a real weak man when I get a stomach bug. Just laying on the floor, why God? Longing for the dawn, longing for the thing to go away. That, that's the kind of longing we have. Longing for it, like we long for the sun to come up after a long, dark, scary night. Here, here's some very practical ways that you can hold fast to the, the hope that's set before you. And these are real simple, they're not rocket science. Read your Bible. Well, duh. Read your Bible. Reading the word of God and letting its truth transform your doubt and hopelessness into strong faith and overflowing hope. I never met a person that had real hope, friends, that neglected their Bible. I never met a person that had real, true hope, not just optimism, but like real hope that neglected their Bible. I, I, don't, I can tell you how many times I've sat down in counseling or talked to people, and we start talking about things going on in their life, and I ask them, what's your scripture intake? And when they say next to nothing, I say, let's start there. Let's start there. The scripture is fully sufficient and authoritative, but how often do we neglect the word of God and then wonder why our hope is dried up and wonder why our faith is weak and our capacity for patience is like that of a two-year-old? If you do not allow the word of God to set the trajectory for your life, let's just start with, with your day. Do you? 
We're not just telling you to get up in the morning and read your Bible just because, like, well, that's what you're supposed to do, but that's setting the trajectory for your day. You don't always have to read it in the morning. You might have to read it later. But I'm telling you, that's the thing that has to dictate your emotions. That's the thing that has to dictate how you act at work and how you lead your family and how you interact with lost people, how you interact with each other. That's the thing that is fully authoritative and fully sufficient. And if you're neglecting it, don't wonder that your hope is dried up and that your faith is wandering all over the place and that you can't endure. This is where the need for patient endurance comes in, real practical stuff. Like just, just hauling in the rigging and swabbing the deck. Just like work out your schedule so that you can spend time in the Word of God and less time on Netflix or whatever it is. Not as just some spiritual discipline that's an empty thing, but really trusting that this is the truth that will anchor my soul even deeper. God has promised, and that should be enough, but I'm going to unpack all the riches and the beauty and the glory and the depth of his promise to me from his word. Pray earnestly, number two. Pray earnestly that God would open your mind and your heart to his greatness and to the certainty of his promise and that he would incline your heart to hope in him. Number three, read theologically rich and spiritually challenging literature. If you're cons- are, you, are you consuming meaty things or, or milky things? The music you listen to? The things you watch? Some of you need to do a purge of your libraries? Because they're theologically soft. And we start our day with the news or social media. That's going to lead you down a real depressed lane. Number four, surround yourself with faithful sailors, faithful believers. This is not being simply committed to your covenant family, but it means surrounding yourself with people who you cannot fool and who are willing to get in your face, as Pastor Matt has said before, and hurt your feelings. We're willing to get in your face and say, hey, God calls Christians to hold fast the hope set before them. And you're slacking off. By the way, your slacking off affects me too. We're supposed to be in this together. Surround yourself with people that you cannot fool, people who love you enough to tell you what you need to hear, tell you the truth that you need to hear. Imitate others who have been faithful and gone before you. Surround yourself with those believers who are running with faith, hope, and patient endurance. And practically for this, for, for some of you, you're just going to have to say goodbye to some relationships that are sucking you dry, that are walking in unbelief, what about preaching the gospel to them? There may be a place for that, and there's wisdom that needs to be brought into this. How often we get into this trap thinking that I'm the one who can save them, as if we could save anybody. Maybe the best thing that you can do for that person is to simply show them that sin leads to death, and there are consequences to that. One of those consequences is that our friendship cannot go on like this. Because what you're doing is dead, and what I'm pursuing is life. So when you're ready to pursue life, look me up. Trust God with the results of that. Number five, consider Jesus who is faithful and boast in your hope. I already said this in Colossians 3, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things in the earth. For you are dead and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Have this hope. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He goes on then to give a list of things that you're supposed to take off because that's the old man and things you're supposed to put on because that's the new man. That's what Christ has bought for you. And the last thing I'll say, ways to hold fast your hope is to rejoice, to do this with rejoicing. Psalms 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Christ has made you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Philippians 4, 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you didn't get it the first time, he says, Again, I say rejoice. Romans 12, Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Be like Jesus. The trials and the suffering and the hardship look to your living hope who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And now it is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things and who is a strong and steady anchor for those who are in him. This is strong encouragement, friends. This is strong encouragement. This is all I got for you. I'm done. This is strong encouragement. So hold fast to the hope that is set before you. Why? Let me just leave you again with this. Because we have God's word for it. The promise of the one who cannot lie and the solemn oath of the God who cannot die. I'll leave you with this, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It brings Jesus great joy to deal with this mess of people. And he will present them blameless before the Father one day as we grow in him, as we persevere. So we say to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And God's people said, amen.